0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am panel camp of Washington University in St. Louis. And I am joined as always by Harvey Young of Boston University. Uh, Harvey I I follow your your social media feeds with such interest and excitement. (laughs) It's inspired by you guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, remember, I I signed up for Twitter and Instagram because of the podcast conversation. I I
0: appreciate it. But it's this way that I know that you're giving interviews to Australian TV stations in Bryant Park. You're writing program notes for uh, London production of Octoroon by Brandon Jenkins.
1: I'm writing the note for um, the National Theater's production of An Octoroon. What are you not doing?
0: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, it's nice to see you again. And I'm joined, as always, also by um, Sarah Bejung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how are you holding up at the end of the spring term? I know that I'm barely standing.
2: I'm, I'm. you know, I think we're, you know, kind of crawling uh, to the finish line. But, you know, uh, Here in Maine, we're on our second day of spring, so that's kind of exciting. Um, It feels like we might be starting a trend, and there's, you know, there's lots of youthful excitement and enthusiasm and tinged with vague anxiety about the future. So what's not to love?
0: (laughs) That's great. It sounds like you have turned the corner as well. Um, We have some special topics to talk about today. We read from the current edition of TDR, um, the special edition on performance and reproduction. We read the special section within the special edition on black performance and reproduction, four short essays in a round. We're going to talk about that. Um, We're going to talk about apps and theater. I can barely suppress the urge to make uh, appetizers, Joke, but I didn't, um, and so no. Uh, the things nice on your
2: phone terrible.
0: It's terrible. This is going to be a loosey goosey recording, guys. I have to warn you. Um, it's the end no. of
2: the semester. Welcome to the—you know—the you know,
0: I saw cusp of summer uh, craziness. I saw, um, this is a parenthetical uh, anecdote, I saw with Paige um, a live recording of the Slate Political Gab Fest in St. Louis. This is the podcast that perhaps more than any other is the kind of inspiration in terms of format and, um, you know, collegial repartee that that inspired this one. Um, And they brought drinks on stage. I noticed that Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson Barely sipped their tall cans of of, uh, of St. Louis beer, um, but it made me think that when we do our live recording, maybe we should. No, you you can't bring drinks to an to an Atha session, right? You can't do that. It's not in the. Context. It's not <laughs> in the hotel. It's, is it not? Is that not in the organizational? I think maybe it's
2: you have to do like a special request. Like, would you like video yeah. equipment, audio equipment, a projector, a laptop, or alcohol?
0: Drinks, drinks, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll ha- we probably won't have a projector, so maybe we can have drinks. At any rate, we're going to talk about apps in theater buildings. And finally, we watched the recording of Jesus Christ Superstar live in concert that was broadcast on NBC on April 1st. And we are gonna talk about that show and I suppose the broader phenomenon of the um, live concert version of a musical on network TV. Before we get to those things, there are some news items to share with you. It was recently announced, or, or Esther Kim Lee recently, recently announced that she's leaving Maryland um, to take a job at Duke, where I presume she'll be the chair of the theater studies department. Tony Tony Award nominations are out. Um, I don't know. I'm not a big Tony watcher. From what I could tell from the initial reaction online, part of what was commented upon was that among the shows garnering the most nominations was SpongeBob SquarePants. Which is a surprise... It- it is surprisingly good. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, this is a this is a property that comes from a beloved kids television show. I guess people should not be concerned that Broadway is uh, embraces commercial success and you know uh, broadly appealing uh, uh, shows. But I, I did catch some... <laughs> what?
2: Broadway embraces commercial success? I am shocked. No, well, well, shocked, I tell you. I
0: don't know. I was when talking to happen? Derek Miller and he was telling me that Broadway embraces failure and and, and defeat. Anyways. The
2: <laughs> it's so funny. It's like it's like it's there for making money. Or something. So the Tony, or...
0: Tony nominations are out. I don't know. We tend to go on hiatus during the summer, but maybe the three of us can watch the Tonys and, and release a special reaction to it or something like that. We um, do like a live a live. Podcast. We could. We could sort of stream our reactions to it on. We
2: could. Do, we, we could do a reaction YouTube video. We could do like you know the on tap. God, could anything be less <laughs> I, interesting? I, I, okay, going, I would, I I'm sorry. I'm just. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like thinking of I would think we would to you get, guys get like. React you know. to the Tony's. Um, uh, in
0: other news, <laughs> uh, David Saverin is on Twitter, and I think it's awesome He's a self-identified curmudgeon and he shares his genuine critical opinions of, of work that's out there. Um, if you're not following David Severin, uh, I recommend that, that you do so. Um, a couple of things uh, one so the Goodman theater has made um, free made, has made freely available a video stream of its epic production, of a theatrical adaptation of Roberto Bolaño's uh, 2666. This is a play that I think the total runtime of it is something like five or six hours. Um, It's broken up into, I think, four parts online. This was um, uh, adapted for the stage and directed by Robert Falls and Seth Boakley. And this is something that I really wanted to see, never got around to seeing it. And so I'm super excited that... Um, You can see a production like this um, that's innovative, that's, you know, aesthetically uh, challenging and long. Um, I'm glad that this type of thing is entering into the, what am I saying, downloadable, streamable, uh, theatrical productions. I would have loved to do a segment on this, but I don't think any of us had five hours to to watch a show.
2: It does raise the question, though, of now that these kinds of endurance, durational performances become available online, like, you know... Do you fast-forward some parts? Do you sort of scan ahead to see if something major, you know, happened while, you know, on the video? It raises a whole different kind of spectatorship. So so maybe we could, but we wouldn't have to spend five hours watching it.
0: A couple of other things to mention. One of them, um, uh, lamentable and sad, and I should have mentioned this, I believe, on our previous recording because the news has actually been out for a while, but we have talked about the Indiana University's a PhD program in theater, um, the efforts to fold that, um, the efforts to, uh, keep it going. And my understanding is that word is now out that, that, that program is in fact closing. And the, the administration came back after having said they were going to look at ways to, uh, continue it in subsequent years and, and have said definitively that, um, that that PhD program will be no more. So I wanted to mention it on the podcast, um, it's a, it's a sad thing, and it's an upsetting thing, um, but I wanted to update our listeners on that. Um, the final thing we want to mention to you guys um, is this podcast will have its first live recording at Atha. It is August 4th. It is, um, I believe, 5 o'clock to 6.30 p.m. That is the Saturday of Atha. We have some specifics to work out in terms of what the show will be, Um, but we are all very excited to finally do a live recording of this show with an audience. Um, So listeners, if you have entered your email into our website, I am going to follow up closer to Atha with more information about that. Um, But go ahead, buy your tickets, register for the conference, and come see us Uh, record on tap um, live at Atha. We're we're super excited and looking forward to doing that. So the first topic that we have to discuss today um, is the special section on black performance and reproduction in the most recent edition of TDR, spring of 2018. That edition is dedicated to performance and reproduction. It, the issue itself was edited by Beth Clapper and Rebecca Schneider. And we only read for discussion um, the, the special section, which encompassed four short essays on the topic specifically of black performance and reproduction. And so those essays were by Kimberly Juanita Brown, uh, Sarah Jane Servanek, Jasmine Elizabeth Johnson, and friend of the show, Paige A. McGinley, who listeners listeners should also know is my spouse. Um, um, I was
2: going to say, she's a better friend to some of us than others. But, you know. <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, there's <laughs> there's so much to talk about in these short essays. I think that the, that special section amounts to a total of 15 pages, but it is looking specifically at the kind of uh, conceptual, theoretical, question of the issue, which is what does performance have to do with reproduction, but specifically within the um, parameters of black performance. Um, Like I said, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, Is black performance a kind of genre unto itself? Is it something that ought to have its own critical terminology, its own Proprietary considerations. There is the uh, sort of tension that I think the issue itself is working out throughout, as it's as it's um, represented in the special section, and that is what is reproduction. In my experience, reading having read the introduction to the issue and those essays, there's this kind of slippage between reproduction as the the, the reproduction of the organism in sort of. Biological terms and in Marxist terms, the the reproduction of social relationships, um, the reproduction of uh, oppressive social conditions, etc. The section also made me think about methodologies, the way that a lot of performance studies scholarship will focus on a kind of interpretation of a particular work of culture, and the tension between trying to think about. Sociological issues and historical issues broadly, while also doing close readings of pieces of work that lend themselves towards poetic expression. And the only and the other sort of question that it raised for me was um, how the the subsection works, the way that it's imagined as a a kind of textual roundtable where short essays by four different authors on a relatively confined topics speak to each other or don't. So I've just set, laid out a bunch of different prompts that could go in a bunch of different directions. Sarah or Harvey, what um, what did this special section make you think about or question?
2: Well, I'll just add that <clears throat> the uh, the one other area of reproduction that I think we can talk about that, that shows up in a couple of different ways here is the media re- reproduction. So uh, I was particularly struck with uh, Brown's essay on Erica Badu's uh, music video and the the role of images as a kind of stand-in for moving for moving image. So, so there are a number of figures that are reproduced from uh, Badu's video um, that itself, if you watch it, reminded me a lot of um, Adrian Piper's work, and so. Uh, Brown is talking about Erica Badu in, in terms of space and the body in space, but of course the the conversation or the presentation is is a body in space, and both body and space we we receive as images, and that's and that's true for for all four of the pieces here is the way in which images work alongside text, and I think particularly in terms of. You know, reproductions of performance and, and reproductions of, of thinking about racial presentation and racial performance in, in different kinds of spaces, that the videos uh, and the images occupy a very particular role in, in the in these pieces that I was I was really struck by, and I think I think Brown uses her images in, in, incredibly well.
1: Yeah, and and for me, uh, it sort of reminded me of an article that Rebecca Schneider wrote a while ago on, I think it's called On the Slip, is that, is that what it's called? Uh, basically on slippage and how it's the it's the in between, the not yet defined, the uh, somewhat incomplete, uh, that first draft offers a way of uh, realizing new possibilities. And there's something compelling about uh, these essays, uh, which are quite short, which offer a, a meditation on some aspect of Black experience, right? So I'm thinking about you know how within Paige McGinley's piece there's um, in the refrain in the return of this is not your grandfather's your father's civil rights movement uh, there's a space for the absenting of women um, you know or or how um, the slippage of embodiment appears within Jasmine Johnson's piece where you know choreography uh, exists as some lost part of a body as you're trying to you know attain the expertise of the choreographer right you know or even thinking about the breath within Sarah Jane Servanac's piece, you know, so it's like there's something of how, like, as a whole, when you sort of look back upon it, it's, you know, realizing the importance of thinking about women's um, activity and engagement and leadership within the civil rights movement and breath and embodiment all comes together in interesting ways, you know, so it creates this sort of constellation of theories and concepts of blackness that, at first glance, doesn't appear individually, right? You know, but then as a collective, it emerges, and I find that to be quite impressive.
0: You know, I, I checked out the introduction to the issue to sort of orient myself towards what was going on in this special section, um, and there. Let me read this uh, sentence from the introduction by Beth Clapper and, and Rebecca Schneider. Um, The perplexing simultaneity of performance as a mode of disciplinary social reproduction and a mode of the survivance of varieties of otherwise syncopate in the insights of the contributions collected here so that we can start to tease them open for the errancies that offer escape. This, to me, is a formulation of something that I think is a familiar habit in um, performance studies scholarship, which is we have to acknowledge that what we're talking about when we speak about performance is not always liberatory. We're beyond the uh, place where we habitually think that, you know, in the sort of Schechner- Turner rhetoric, that performance is the thing that is somehow predisposed towards kinds of communication and experience that are liberatory or oriented against um, oppression. On the other hand, we, need, we seem to need to find in the performances that we're describing answers to how we escape. Do those answers come in the form of you know, critiques of media, uh, sort of critical thought? Do they come in um, a desire to see performance activity as activism?
2: It sounds like you have an opinion about this panel, uh, and so I guess I'm curious. Like, I mean, yeah, because because I, because I mean, you know, my take on on I mean, my take on Brown or my interest was not was not necessarily. I mean, like, I appreciate the the the, the kind of political orientation of what she's doing, but I was actually as compelled by the kind of formalist uh, aspects of this, and and you know, and and this is uh, you know. I've been called this both as as praise and insult before, so I'm I'm very happy to kind of own my mm-hmm. my perhaps marginal status in that sense. I mean, obviously, you, you mean know,
0: you've been you've been called a formalist in yes, a way, in yes, a way that was call not called a formalist. Uh, yeah, both yeah. both
2: both nicely and 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 uh, and as slight. Okay, yeah. Um, I
0: guess what I I guess the thing that I'm sort of pointing to is, I think that looking at reproduction in a Marxist materialist framework suggests that there's a, a theory of society or a sociological mind frame, but that a lot of performance studies work in so inside this edition and outside of it is not really thinking in terms of uh, society as a system. And it's not really thinking of performance as a kind of social practice that can be more or less liberatory. And
2: I'm not, I just don't understand what your, what your point here is panel. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean it's so I'm just going to recap and you can correct me where I'm wrong and then okay. and then I'd be curious on on Harvey because I think yeah. I think this is actually a different I think there are two kinds of conversations here one is okay. the question of like are the stakes raised in the introduction fulfilled by the short pieces mm-hmm. um in which case in some ways they they the, the stakes that that get raised in the introduction are so high like how could these short pieces live right. up to them right. but then the second is this question of like you know does all performance studies and 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 scholarship need to have a kind of you know marxist liberatory bent mm-hmm. in order to be considered valid and important and if it if it doesn't what is the 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 point of it and if it does if it should do that then m- much of what we regularly read and what some of us write i think habitually fails in this in this domain Am I under, am I am I understanding I think, those I points think correctly? Yes. I
0: think you're clarifying a kind of, you know, a couple of things that I'm jumbling together into an an awkward and not terribly fruitful question. I think when I understand the the sort of sense of reproduction of social relations determined by a mode of production, when I think of reproduction that way, I don't know. I'm I'm interested in a kind of perspective on The way that performance is understood sociologically as being a factor in the way the social order is produced and reproduced. And I don't mean to say that in this issue, you know, it's promised that all of the work is going to do that. I just think that some of it does and some of it doesn't. I don't mean to say that some work is more valuable than others or that performance studies needs to all get on board with a kind of marxist project i just think that when it's when when the reading is framed that way you can see how a more formalist reading seems to be limited
1: i agree I, I, but, but i think that part of the issue here is that there's a there is a disconnect between the introduction uh, and the individual essays uh, and you know my suspicion is that you know what it is is that the introduction is uh, attempting to anchor this idea of reproduction uh, into a much longer uh, sort of intellectual uh, history, uh, whereas the the essays themselves are pretty presentist, right? You know, and uh, not only in terms of the subject matter, uh, sort of even when they're looking at contemporary people looking back, but also at, at the level of citations, mm-hmm. you know, where you know it's a very uh, 21st century project across these essays, uh, which is which is wonderful because w- w- what we're doing is we're getting a sense of of what contemporary scholars are doing as we're theorizing in the moment using, uh, as their scaffolding, a, a, as their argumentation, uh, work that's been produced in the last 20 years, right? So it's it's hard to find uh, uh, sources that you know, occur prior to 2000, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so what does it mean to sort of anchor scholarship around blackness and performance theory uh, in a work that was done in the last 18 years? Uh, and I think what's happening here is that reproduction becomes this, you know, it becomes the sense of an abstract idea of againness, right? Uh, and it's in that return you know, that you're seeing, uh, you know, it manifest in different ways across the individual essays. Uh, you know, is it mobilized in the same way? No, but if you think about these these, these smaller essays, they tend to become like potluck dinners, <laughs> right? You know, where you, where you bring... Uh, your own special dish uh, and interest uh, to the table, uh, so that's why there's some disconnect there. But across all
0: of them, I can see
1: you know there's this interest in the againness of repetition. Yeah, I agree, and,
0: and let me say this just to I want to be clear that I am in a way setting up my question in a way that's a bit unfair because the special section has its own introductory essay. So so I read the introduction to the whole edition and then I dive into those essays, and there is you know there's very sensitive and perceptive and generous framing on the part of the editors of the pieces within the short section. Um, but Harvey, I do think you're getting at, I think something that was irking me a little bit, which is a, a question like per- performance and reproduction and especially, uh, black performance and reproduction. Like there, there's a history there that's bound up in, uh, the, I don't know, the way that, uh, black people and, and their reproduction was managed and coerced, um, in the era of slavery that it that changes like the, the state's attitude towards black life after the civil war after uh the civil rights movement it's not the same thing it's not all one trans-historical um, relationship between blackness and and life and reproduction
2: i think that, that this is also just uh my final thought but I mean, some of this also goes to the whole question of the word, right, of reproduction and reproduced, which has such strong um, biological uh, connotations with it. And so we always think of it in the, you know, like even if you're not talking explicitly and has such strong, you know, material historical uh, connotations and meanings um, and and is I mean, in some ways it, it almost becomes so expansive that it it. It ceases to do the kind of specific work that you're pointing to, panel, and and I think also the, the 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 size of these articles and their you know relatively short length contributes contributes to that. But the you know, but I also think that's kind of what makes it fun. Like it's a it's a kind of open collection that I mean I would say that you know if people haven't read it yet you know there's a lot to be absorbed in and and enjoyed there, and and it is it's like a starting point. And so you, I mean I don't think you leave. Fulfill—it's an amuse bush really, of uh, I, I love uh, to, you know, to set up your appetizer joke yes. for our next and pl- segment. And please, can we? It's <laughs> really—it just—it it's, sort of excites the intellectual palate and makes you want more. Yes, and I, perhaps in different and so areas. So maybe we
0: should steer our way into a topic that will be a bit—I um, don't know—more amenable to.
2: The techno formalists, among yes, us? In, in Why, the, yes, although yes. no, but this, uh, but,
0: no. but this has, but this has um, uh, real socio political implications as well. So we're going to talk now about um, apps and theater. I, in American theater, there was recently a, an article on the emergence of this new software um, by a company called Gala Prompt, um, and this made us think uh, about the broader phenomenon of apps and their places in uh, relationship to theatrical production. So. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about what's in this article and um, what other you know, questions we might consider regarding apps?
2: Well, one of the things that I have always been struck by uh, is that, and this, is, this has been true for a while now, but I think it gets more robust every year that goes by, is that every time you walk into a theater and you ask, you know, you hear the recording announcement telling you to turn off your phones I think for uh, an increasingly large, large and growing uh, segment of the audience, this is equivalent to walking into a theater and being asked to chop off a limb. Uh, you know, if you could please not use your right hand for the next two hours or to take something very precious and valuable like I don't know like your child away for you know the, it's you know there's a sense of loss and separation and uh, and anxiety that begins now every theater show, like what will I miss and what will happen and so um so there's kind of two do, two dimensions to to this uh one is the 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 gallopro or the galloprompt um app and software which is really about accessibility and and making live theatrical productions maximally accessible to 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 people regardless of uh you know uh, different kinds of um engagements right so it it's Helpful for people who have visual impairments. It's helpful for people who are deaf. I personally prefer live signing interpretation. I frequently find that to be like one of the more exciting parts of a performance Mm -hmm. if it's there. Um, But it, 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 but it has this, you know, it's scalable and it's it uses a technology that's increasingly ubiquitous. So so there's that. But then it gets to this other question of like, you know, is this the 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 wedge to unfettered app use? And we've all heard the sort of Sensational stories about, you know, Patty LaPone stopping the show in the middle to like grab someone's cell phone and throw it backstage or mm-hmm. You know people getting berated for being on their phone and certainly the the extent to which that's You know a, an occurrence is 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 an impediment, but but I always come back to this idea of You know, what does it mean to, to tell people to take this? This thing or this experience or this point of connection that feels very valuable and very vital mm-hmm. and I use that word very deliberately um, and tell them to turn it off so that they can have some other kind of experience. And I wonder if it doesn't precondition uh, audience members to dislike what comes next. It's like, okay, well, is this worth turning off my phone for? You know, it's no longer about how expensive <laughs> it is or, you know, how, how how far one travels. It's now it's like, oh, is it worth the time that I will not spend online? Uh, and that's why I'm really interested in... in Shows that find ways to incorporate that in. So, you know, we did that in a show here at Bowden, but but uh, Builders Association also has has integrated that into their one of their more recent pieces about Oz. Anyway, what do you guys think? Do you guys miss your phones during shows? Do you would you use an app if it were there?
1: I would, <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> will. I will admit that I uh, I saw a play recently at the Signature Theater. It was Paradise Blue, Dominic Morisot's play. And the person sitting next to me was just fidgeting, and maybe he was expecting a super urgent email or something like that. But he just, or, or, or it might have been that the Cavaliers were playing. I don't know. But something was happening, and every thirty seconds he was checking his phone. He was checking his phone, and my first thought was like, "Oh, you're totally violating, like you know, like the decorum of of of." Uh, audiencing a, a live event but then after like five minutes I became envious and I was like I want to check." That <laughs> <phone too." laughs> you know like why does this guy get to do it and not me um no but I do think that there is that sense that when you shut your phone off um you are depriving some part of yourself it's 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 a sad acknowledgement of of media culture uh, and and how dependent we are it's our addiction but uh you do miss it when it's off
0: what about what the performers are doing on stage I mean that so, so the audience misses their phone. I'm I'm one of those people. I'm very addicted to my phone. And as soon as the lights come up for intermission, phone's back on, checking Twitter, checking my email. There's no email, but um, isn't I, I, one thing that the American Theater article suggested to me was that the developers of these apps they're very concerned about the the phone screen going on. That the, the Gala Pro app. Um, for for people with you know vision impairment or you know t- to give um, captions in a variety of languages for an opera or a play, the they seem very concerned that the phone not light up, not distract people. There's a part of the article where they said that when they tried this out, they required or you know strongly asked uh, app users to turn off their Wi-Fi or turn off their network so that they wouldn't be tempted to you know use the use the phone to do precisely the type of thing that we're missing um, to me it seems pretty apparent that it's hard to enjoy a piece of performance that's designed to hold your attention continuously for you know 30 40 minutes or more at a time and also be checking to see what is going on you know in the in the news like i Is the is the argument that if we maybe allow people to have their phones out and change that cultural norm, that people will be more inclined to go to the theater, and we should, you know, theater artists should adapt to that reality? Do you think that, Sarah?
2: Well, you you were just making a a very good, I thought, very convincing uh, argument about you know the need for historical specificity and to avoid trans historical assumptions, and so certainly (laughs) as we think about. Spectator- spectatorial attention and cultural norms in performance spaces, right, those have changed a lot, and what you're expected to to do, how quiet you're expected to be, how undistracted you are supposed to be, right, has changed a lot, you know, in, in various domains, oh. you can be very distracted, in others, you can be not, you're not supposed to be distracted at all. I, my sense is that we are in a moment of shift, yeah. and that our um, and is in any kind of you know moment of a uh, significant cultural change, there's there's a certain contingent that is you know attached to what has gone before and and wants to preserve that, mm-hmm. and there's another uh, domain that is really invested in changing things and, and thinking about them, and so I I am less interested in trying to. Uh, introduce cell phone use into certain kinds of play-going experiences i find them as irritating mm-hmm. as any other um you know if i'm trying to watch a you know like a, a a serious realist play in which everyone is quietly sitting next to each other in the theater and somebody is checking their phone next mm-hmm. to me right i mean it's 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 distracting yeah um so i think the the question is not you know, should we let phones into it's 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 rethinking like, you know, in different spectatorial spaces mm-hmm. Like how do you facilitate that? Right? So how do you engage and let people keep their phones on without diminishing what you're trying to do? And I'll, I'll just say very briefly. So we did this with with love and information and we had an, an Area where we encouraged people to be on their phones But we didn't really tell everybody else that they couldn't be on their so you, phones. So you had a they, portion
0: of the audience. I presume in back where you could have your... Oh,
2: no, we put them right up front.
0: Oh, oh that's interesting. I would have thought yeah. in back because then their screens wouldn't be visible to people behind them.
2: I, I really did. I designed a... Well, I didn't yeah. design a set. I, I collaboratively worked with people who designed a set <laughs> that was overwhelmingly built of screens. Mm-hmm. I was like, I get screens. You should get screens. You know, I have things that light up. You, you should get things that light up. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the way I talked to the actors about it is like, look, you know, like at some point you're doing things on stage that they haven't seen and they can't see in their phones. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is that when they look in their phones, they miss what's happening on stage. When they watch what's happening on stage, they miss what's going on on their phones. And so, you know, you're always missing something. And then we made that a joke in the show. Yeah. So I, You know, we built a whole port of the, of the play where you could either... Uh, uh, you could you, you either got uh, an, a, an, audience, uh, an actor coming up and talking and you know, delivering a, a short piece of text to you directly, mm-hmm. but of course I had you know, however many people in the audience and only 20 actors, and then there was text on the screen that basically made jokes about the fact that some people were missing out. So the people who were getting the story were getting this very serious, kind of intense story whispered in their ear. Mm-hmm. The people who were watching the text were laughing, mm-hmm. and, uh, and if you got the story, Right? You couldn't really pay attention to the jokes and you weren't sure like why people were laughing. It was a very serious story. And if the people who weren't getting the story were laughing but they were wondering like what the story was that these other people were getting. So there's also a, a logic of, of the phone and, and technology and, and our attention addiction mm-hmm. that can become parts of the show as well.
1: I, I do suspect that everyone's worst nightmare might be that the theater could become Uh, the equivalent of sitting on an airplane uh, during the safety (laughs) announcement (laughs) right? where everyone's on their phone checking their email I don't playing games and then there's a live embodied performance in front of you that's being actively Mm -hmm. ignored yeah I I
2: that is like the opposite of the liberatory performance right it is the it is the it (laughs) is the on the opposite end of performance studies is liberatory right and an escape It is the it is the performance of the airplane that is all about restraint and how to buckle your seatbelt properly. I, I was just
0: a, you know to speak, Sarah, to your um, point about uh, norms changing and historical change, uh, you know, dynamism, etc. I, I went and saw Infinity War, uh, which is a you know the latest Marvel um, comics universe uh, blockbuster.
2: Is it good? I haven't gotten it's, to see it's it. It's not
0: good. Don't go. Um, <laughs> no. That's well, I'm a, I'm I might still I'm, go. I like. I'm that a means. crank about this stuff. I've seen a lot of them. Anyways, I'm not going to get into this. But what I wanted to point out was, um, you know, the there's a film strip at the beginning. Well, I feel like the word film strip really it, it dates me. There's a sort of um, you know AMC uh, uh, prelude between the previews and the and the actual feature. Where you know the lights are going to go down, and they one of the things they tell you to do is to put your phone away and stop talking. Don't ruin the movie. It's rather strident. Um, and then you know I, I noticed this partly because as soon as that had happened and the movie was about to start, someone in the back of the theater yelled across the entire space at another spectator in the front of the theater to put their phone away. So it may be that we're at a kind of like social breaking point where phones or phone use in the theater is just going to happen. We can't fight it anymore, but there certainly seems to be a strong agency, um, that theaters movie, you know, uh, you know, cinemas, these are places where your phone is not welcome and you're going to get yelled at if you, if you take them out. It does make you think,
1: just thinking about this, that the push to not allow a person to use a phone is really, uh, imagining the audience as a truly passive spectator. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about it within sort of a realistic structure of, of theater making, you know, that you're in the living room, but you are like, you're truly a fly on the wall that is, I guess, mm-hmm. stuck there. <laughs> like, you know, like, like just unable to move and just kind of watching the whole thing. But it's different than opera, right? Where there is a history, a long history of super titles and having to deal with screens as something that uh, can, capture and often captures the attention of of the audience member and certainly within u.s mm-hmm. operas you know when the supertitles go out like if, if there's a display problem you know, you, you can sense the panic mm-hmm. uh, in the you know in the auditorium among the spectators about not being able to look at the screen that would tell them what was happening uh, so i think that it's in some ways tied into uh, a very limited expectation of spectatorship within mm-hmm. theater
0: i'm interested in your experiment sarah and also the the ways that um uh the Builders Association have tried to design the app or use software to create, you know, specific attention dividing or steering uh, experiences as opposed to, you know, just saying like, oh, here's a text you can read whenever you want, or here's an alternative to paying attention to the show, that there are specific experiments in, uh, you know, coordinating people's attachments to their phone with their attachments or their attention to the to the performance so maybe those things will take off maybe maybe this is just a sort of era of experimentation but
2: I don't know, panel. I, I think these cell phones are, might be here to <laughs> the, stay. For the a cell while. phones are here to stay. <laughs> just just call me crazy, no, but I have a feeling. No, but it's like it's like
0: three D or or possibly VR. There, there's always a lot of enthusiasm at the advent of this new technology and how it's going to transform everything. And sometimes it transforms everything, and very frequently, it, it we would go back into our habitual modes, not having found the experiment that that takes off.
2: Well, if you look at the. Consistently declining numbers of live theater attendance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect that that those will continue until or unless, and, and maybe they will continue regardless. Uh, of a way, a, of, a, a way of, of of changing the engagement of live theater so that it it becomes something meaningful for people who's who have grown up with cell phones
0: let us transition from one um, invocation of changing the experience of live theater, changing the mode of interaction of live theater to another, Uh, we watched the... Jesus Christ Superstar live in concert um, NBC televised event we watched it a month later um, uh, but uh, I, I was excited to share this experience with you because I don't know about you for the past few years when NBC has been doing these I keep seeing you know reactions to them on social media and I think oh it seems like something fun is happening people are online tweeting about this or they're sort of enjoying this you know kind of theater nerd oriented, um, big media event. So I was really glad to get to watch this with you guys. Um, it does seem like a kind of specific audience experience that might have been a more amenable to cell phone use than other theatrical experiences. It brings up questions of uh, you know, the sort of old debates about liveness versus mediated um, uh, theatrical performance. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. I don't know, uh, Harvey, what, what, did you, what did you think of Jesus Christ Superstar?
1: Yeah, so it's the latest in the lineup of, of live enactments or reenactments of, no, actually no, it's it's the latest in the uh, staging of, of live shows, live musicals for a massive widespread audience, right? So in this case, you're talking about Jesus Christ Superstar, which aired on Easter Sunday uh, and it's for two and a half hours, starring John Legend, Brandon um, uh, Victor Dixon. Alice Cooper, John Legend as, as the man, Sarah Bareilles, <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Bareilles, Very as well, uh, and you know, so it's it's a play that uh, was has, I feel like with each of these TV musicals, they're actually learning to adapt to how to make it both a live event, you know, uh, emerge that's that sense of an experience of, of being there in front of performers who are in, uh, embodying these characters in your midst. Know, by actually in this case, uh, presenting it in front of a live audience, right? So there was a lot of back and forth between uh, the various actors and the live audience that was there. You know, so it gave a sense of, of, of theater being a kind of a one-time only event before spectators who are co-present, who are co-participants in the making of, the, of, of these pieces. Um, you know, Variety actually wrote a wonderful article about this, uh, and what they did was they singled out uh, Brandon Victor Dixon. And if I remember correctly, was Brandon Victor Dixon the person who uh, uh, critiqued Pence?
0: Uh, oh, you know, and, I don't know. I know, Air, Do you know? I, I know he played. I know he played persisted. Aaron Burr on on Broadway. Yeah, so, I don't know if he was the one who spoke up or not offhand.
1: I feel like my, my, my memory tells me, uh, and my memory has been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that he was the person who stood uh, and addressed uh, Vice, President Mike Pe- Mike, uh, Mike, uh, Vice President Mike Pence. Vice President Mike Pence during that staging. But anyway, um, it was Dixon who Variety signals as the person who uh, was the star mm-hmm. of this production, right, and, and says that, you know, when the center stage was occupied by the former Hamilton cast member, uh, you know, the show was generally mesmerizing, right? It gave it heft, complexity, and a majestic fatality to his Judas, uh, you know, who is the, perhaps the most coherent, even sympathetic character in Andrew Lloyd Webber's and Tim Rice's opera. Uh, you know, so I think that it, it gave an opportunity to think about different ways of staging, uh, these plays with different levels of yeah. expertise, right, from Norm Lewis to Alice Cooper to John Legend. You know, so you saw, you know, not only uh, artists of, of different colors and complexions, uh, but also different approaches to expertise in music and live performance on display.
2: What were your thoughts?
0: Um, well, oh,
2: just a quick introduction. You were yes, right, so, it was. Just-
0: I checked I checked that out too. So good, so good job. Excellent.
2: Well Yay, let, me, let, me, let me jump in here and say <laughs> that
0: one of the things that I thought was most fascinating about this was it's kind of, the way that Hamilton, uh, sort of changes what the production is or at least it changes my perception of it partly because Brandon Victor Dixon um, is from you know the Broadway cast of uh, of Hamilton Um, but I think also the 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 casting choices there it's you know very racially diverse cast Um, you know they're in terms of gender diversity not so much there's really just one uh, female role, uh, a significant uh, female role. Um, but it's also the kind of Jesus versus Judas um, uh, polarity. And just like Aaron Burr, um, Judas has the first number. He's got this, you know, in the same way that with Hamilton, it's about, you know, it's about the titular character, but that somehow creates the space for this phenomenal role um, of the villain who um, is responsible for his death. Um, so kind of like Amadeus yeah. too. Yeah. But in non-musical yeah. form. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and, so, and so you have this just phenomenal performance. Um, you know, I looked at some of the reviews as well and and John Legend was given sort of mixed reviews. His voice is unbelievable. There's something about his stage presence that is I don't know, for me it's not quite the Jesus you you want in in, in any in, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean just in terms of his uh his uh yeah it's just the Jesus. You well, got. it's the Jesus.
2: Sometimes you get the Jesus you want, sometimes you get the Jesus you need, you know. Well, in this case he
0: was the Jesus I needed, not the Jesus I wanted. But um, no, but his voice is incredible and and I think you're right, Harvey. There's something about the fun of casting it with, you know, uh, musicians who are not actors and, you know, bringing Alice Cooper out and the the I thought the direction was phenomenal like that the, the That um, hangar or armory where they staged it, I thought that just the way it came together as a televised and also apparently a live event looked um, looked great so i I was a fan of it um, but it but to me, it felt very Hamilton. I imagine that in the conversations about producing it that it must have come up um, you know that maybe it's a sign of uh, i don't know the 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 impact that Hamilton has had on. On pop culture, um, that it was done, or maybe it was just the fact that I had recently seen Hamilton in St. Louis, and so I was seeing it again in my own head. Sarah,
2: so you guys didn't find it unbelievably cheesy? Oh shh!
0: No, I oh, thought it was super of cheesy. I yeah.
2: mean, <laughs> I was just like, you know, I mean, now I grew up Catholic, right? So maybe, maybe it's that there are like Godspell people and Jesus Christ superstar people. Right. But I mean I you know i i I will never get these songs out of my head I you know I used to sing them all the time and play them on you know like on vinyl and uh and and it had been a long time since I had seen a production of this, and there was something about it. I don't know if it was the the staging did not feel particularly dynamic or interesting to me it just it like was like kind of super cheese um and yeah <laughs> no but I thought that I thought that that worked I mean. Well, I, really? Yeah. See, I thought the whole see the the problem with that is like I mean Andrew Lloyd Webber and, and 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 Tim Rice and their pairing in particular it works best when they own the camp. Uh-huh. You know, like I mean like parts of Cats are amazing. Yeah because because they're cats yeah. and they're and this it seemed like they could they it seemed like in some moments they they kind of were willing to own the cheese like and and um and the campiness is in Alice Cooper is is truly astonishing i mean yeah. he's just i rewatched that part like 7 times i thought that was yeah. i could just watch Alice Cooper come on and be like hey guess what you thought i'd never do over and over and over and over again well could it but then oh go on but then, but then there were these moments where they really, especially like in the cuts to, and this is where that you're coming to Hamilton kind of made me think of this, like cuts to the the the, the ensemble, right, and like the the sort of over emoting in that. And there were just like parts where I felt like, you know, that re and this is where John legend also, I thought really played into the earnestness. And I was just like, Oh, Oh, you're, you're not earnest. You can't, you can't be serious. Anyway. So for me, it was sort of laughable. I
0: totally get that. I think maybe my reaction was, it was conditioned by a, the fact that I had never seen this in any form before. And so to me, I was like, Oh, this is kind of amazing that they made this pop album about this story and so it to me it still seemed perhaps kind of a little bit provocative given the nature of the subject material and how you know i don't know just how um irreverent it it is about that about that material but i wonder also if this is a super irony saturated cultural moment has been for a while and if maybe camp is harder to pull off when so many people's default um Uh, lens on things is going to be ironic or maybe what it is is that it's polarizing and so if you haven't uh, if you're used to a kind of ironic take on something like this you can't accept that it's being played like it's deadly serious which it which it really was to me I enjoyed the silliness of the seriousness of it
2: it's funny thinking about the a sort of juxtaposing this with Hamilton versus juxtaposing it with The Handmaid's Tale, uh, in which case, like, you know, running from from crazed crowds of Christians uh, has a very different kind of feel to it. Right. You know, and so so there is a kind of and and this is, you know, kind of what Harvey was saying, too. Like, if you sort of think about all of the kind of hauntings that you might bring into this cultural moment, uh, including Dixon's response to to, you know, Pence, And the kind of stirring up of Christian sentiment against certain people in in this country and uh, on behalf of other people and the sort of moment uh, politically that we're in, you know, I mean, like, there are moments where I'm kind of sympathetic to, you know... uh, the the antichrists right I'm like okay you know that's actually no they they are kind of crazy and he does seem to be whipping them into a you know an uncontrolled frenzy oh, I could see how that might be a little dangerous I may not this is not a safe space for me you know I, so I'm just you know it's, I think there are a lot of funny things kind of going on in this show and
1: there is something interesting about how uh, these these TV musicals tend to uh, Take pieces that could be interpreted in many different ways. You know, I mean, my, my suspicion is Jesus Christ Superstar you know, was making a, you know, a, a, a play, you know, to Christian spectators as well as uh, more general theater audiences, because you know we know that, um, you know, sort of Christian-themed storylines tend to be quite profitable. Uh, That's but interesting. if you think about the production of Greece previously or Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, you know, there is a playfulness uh, that allows for these levels of uh, sort of celebrity casting, but also in terms of levels of interpretation, too. So
0: you mean that the the tone of it, the sort of incongruously serious tone, might have been in consideration of an effort to present this as something that uh, Christian viewers might tune into and not feel insulted by?
1: Well, no, well I think, well, I,
0: yes, but
1: also the fact that it was chosen to, I mean, the, the, the very choice to to stage Jesus Christ Superstar, I mean, that's a title unlike yeah. uh, some of the other ones that have been produced, right? So I think that there was a, a delicacy around um, its former presentation, uh, you know, but if you think, of, if you pull, if you zoom out, you know, it's really a sense of playfulness that allows these things to, to succeed. Even Peter Pan, which was what, the mm-hmm. first one, right? Like, like, if you think of all the musicals that exist, you know, would you... You could stage anything you want. Would you stage Peter Pan, Little Hell, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, or um, Grease? Right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you might pick
0: other things. So why those texts? It's a, it's a, no, it's a good question. I think maybe I, I was on the side of this because I'm just happy that in 2018, NBC finds it commercially viable to do this, which is to stage these rather you know, dorky music, like, you know, it's, it's parts of the repertoire that I think people, people like because they, they saw it in high school or they did it in high school. It's not, it's not Sondheim. It's not, you know, um, high culture. There's a kind of fun and goofiness to the offering of it that I think is exciting. And I'm just glad that doing it as a live event rather than a sort of televised, like a television movie version where they would, um, you know film it and edit it together after the fact I think that's cool but maybe I'm just sentimentalist about the live event right Sarah
2: you know which admittedly we did not watch live I will say if you go back through the Twitter account so so to the extent that I watched this live, I followed the Twitter uh I followed theater Twitter live Mm -hmm. during the during the event which felt totally sufficient and entirely pleasurable Mm -hmm. and uh, that's a, that's and awesome. And pe- pe- people were great. I mean, it was, and I was like, I don't have to watch it. This is so much more fun. I can watch whatever I was watching something else. And, and I'll just follow along with Twitter to find out what's going on in Jesus Christ Superstar. Well,
0: we need to move on to drafts because I know um, people have to get going. Um, uh, drafts, our audience members will know, are our, our fleeting thoughts, our incomplete projects, our, um, uh, our musings. Um, I'll go first and I'll go quickly um, so the, uh, there is this uh, special edition of the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism on Dramatic Theory that Iro Lane is editing, and I have a piece in there that um, is what I, I believe the title of it is The Poetics of Performance Non-Events. And it's this, I think I have mentioned it on the show before, it is about the, um, the problem of historical artifacts of uh, theatrical works that were never completed, never fully staged, so designs, drawings, etc. I as part of my participation in this um, virtual reality uh, uh, 18th century theater project that Jeffrey Leishman and Francoise Roubelin are heading up, um, I was just in Baton Rouge and came up against a really interesting and ironic um, uh, uh, example of this historiographic problem. So, the team is trying to reproduce or, or create a version of an 18th century French theater building in the fairground that um, people can sort of have a playable experience with. And so we have the historical problem of saying, do we pick a real, hist- a real theater building, a real playhouse that we know existed in a certain time and place and do our best to reconstruct what we think it looked like on the basis of incomplete archival evidence? Um, and if so, how do we do that? Well, some of the researchers found this gorgeous set of like twenty different architectural drawings um, uh, in all different views, plan, section, um, transversal, with even the decorations specified, and it from an uh, an architectural and computer um, uh, uh, programming point of view it's it would be so much easier to work from that than anything else that's in the archive. The problem is it was never built. so the best the best historical evidence, and in a in a really meaningful way, the truest, um, most real, you know, evidence of a theater building from this time and place that we want to do is something that is counterfactual. We know it was never built; it was just imagined. But the the archival source of it is much richer and much um, uh, more specific and much superior to any of the alternatives. Um, so it made me think about the the enticements of theater history that you know never culminated in an event so that's my draft um harvey what's yours
1: uh my draft is i'm, I'm working on or well, i guess i'm editing this book on uh as part of jim peck's uh, series on great american directors so it looks at uh, lloyd richards jerome robbins and elia kazan and, you know, so we're in the process right now of gathering those, those, those pieces. And I realized just recently that I'm actually short a few pieces, <laughs> a couple of pieces. Uh, so, so my draft <laughs> is sort of thinking about... Send you send um, you an uh, essay. <laughs> uh, so people who might be interested, uh, who also might listen to On Tap, uh, you know, and have an interest in writing about Lloyd Richards or Elie Kazan or Jerome Robbins, like, this is your moment. This is truly your moment. So it should be right. an email. Sarah?
2: So as we approach undergraduate graduation here at, at beautiful Coastal Maine Bowdoin College, I have been thinking about all the uh, advice that people give that comes from Shakespeare in which the source is completely untrustworthy. And so, someone you should listen to, and I'm thinking particularly of of things like Malvolio, and you know, some men are born great, some men become great, and some of greatness thrust upon them, and and the way in which that phrase gets recycled, and it's just like if you if you know anything about Twelfth Night, you would never invoke that phrase, right? Because, because because Malvolio, and I've been thinking a lot about Polonius and his you know advice, uh, you know, to his son upon leaving you know, and neither a borrower nor a lender be. And so I think what I'm going to do in, in class tomorrow to our, because I, I have a number of graduating seniors in this fairly large intro class uh, who are leaving, and I'm thinking of, of doing some kind of twist on on that and, and getting at the point of, like, you know, does Shakespeare really want us to listen to this advice? Because if he did, he would put it in the mouth of someone we ought to listen to a lot more than Polonius. Um, and if he doesn't, why, what why? is it about this advice that's so compelling and by putting it in, in, the, in the mouth of a character with, that we ought not to pay much attention to, what then is Shakespeare actually telling us about the advice that he is, is giving? And uh, uh, the, the, the thing that's sort of been tickling in my brain, and I haven't worked through the whole text yet, but is the whole, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be, hmm. right? And the idea, like on the face of it, you're like, oh no, that makes a lot of sense. Except that actually it's like then you would be in, almost inhuman and antisocial, right? I mean, like we are all borrowers from people and we are all lenders to someone. And, you know, you can think of it strictly in financial terms. But but the actual idea is that we all get and give and to be a, a full and engaged human being is to do those things in, in somewhat equal measure and to always contribute as much as one takes. So I'm thinking of going back for my final class of thinking through those that you know that advice in particular, and what what it's what's weird about raising it with you know as as strict advice from parents to children, and what what Shakespeare might actually be telling us about how to live in the world.
0: Sarah, I have to say that sounds like the makings of one of an, an ideal end of year, end of college, humanist reflection. I'm very I'm very impressed.
2: Well, cool well good and hopefully i don't think any of them listen to this podcast so you know it won't come out before class tomorrow and i I don't know i'll let you know how it goes in the next year
0: i'm frequently surprised by who listens to the podcast um uh speaking of which uh hi listeners and and my mom my mom has been catching up on episodes though she's way behind um so this is a message for me from the past into the future to my mom hey mom um Anyways, listeners, thank you so much, Sarah Harvey. Wonderful as always to see you and, and talk to you. And listeners, um, uh, give a, uh, go to the website, uh, uh, submit your email, and I'll, we'll be in touch with um, exciting information about the Atha recording, etc. Bye. On tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for on Tap, and on Twitter at OnTapPodcast.